Good morning, everybody. And it's good to be sharing with you again. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet you, to sit at your feet, and to come to your table. We pray that you will touch our lives, giving us encouragement, challenge, whatever it is each one of us needs this morning. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, we're looking together at Philippians chapter 1, um, the passage that we've had read as our epistle. We're right at the beginning of the letter. And so I think what I want to do is, is talk a little bit about Paul, who wrote it, talk a little bit about Philippi, the place to which it was sent, and then zoom in just for the last little bit on the prayer and glean one or two things from it as we look at the life of the church in Philippi, the people there, and um, what Paul actually prays for them, and therefore what he wants to see as the hallmarks of a church anywhere today, whether it's in Philippi or Stoughton or wherever. So first of all, Paul as a person. He was, as we all know, a commanding figure. He came from Tarsus in the southeast of what is now Turkey, very close to the Syrian border, uh, near the coast, and uh, that was a, a, a university town. It was a Roman colony. Um, his father was a Roman citizen, although he came from a Greek background because he was, in that sense, a Gentile and was called to go to the Gentiles uh, in terms of his lifelong ministry. So he came from Tarsus. Tarsus was a, a very important town. Um, it was about 10 miles inland, but in fact, the engineers had done a couple of amazing things. First of all, they, they'd completely drained an enormous lake, and then they cut a channel all the 10 miles to the coast, and they created one of the most significant ports and anchorages of the ancient world. It was a fantastic place. It was also a university town, uh, came after, in, in importance, some people would say it came after Athens and Alexandria and was third, but there are many, many people who thought actually it was at the top of the list, um, the university in Tarsus. So Paul was Greek by birth and residency, but actually he was Roman by citizenship because of his father, and his father had probably been uh, made a Roman citizen a long time before um, as a result of Tarsus having been made a Roman colony and uh, all the important people in the town having been given the status of Roman citizen. So Greek by birth and residency, um, Roman by citizenship, but of course he was Jewish by faith and upbringing. And it was his Jewishness that meant the most to him. And all through the life, his life, he wasn't saying, I used to be a Jew. He's saying, I am a Jew. He retained his Jewishness throughout his ministry. And although um, his ministry was to the Gentiles, you remember that he always started in the synagogue. So you can see how Paul was being prepared, um, naturally, if you like, for this wonderful international global ministry um, because of his background. Interestingly, although Tarsus was, as I said, 
perhaps the leading university, one of them certainly, Paul chose instead to go and study under the most famous Jewish rabbi of the day, who was a man called Gamaliel. And so he went to Jerusalem and was brought up in Jerusalem, studied under Gamaliel, and he was, because he was so devout and incredibly sort of Jewish in every way, he was totally opposed to the newly emerging Christian faith to the point where he became its leading persecutor. And uh, he was a kind of Gestapo SS figure. We, we forget that. Uh, he was a, a fanatical tyrant who dragged people out of their homes and uh, you know, wanted to sort of change them back into being Jewish. And that was his life until the day came, you remember, on the Damascus Road, when the man who showed no mercy to others was showered with mercy from God, and his life was completely turned around by Jesus Christ. And as a result, he became the great missionary statesman, evangelist, uh, apostle that we know from the New Testament. So that's Paul. What an amazing man, incredibly well-educated. He was very good at argument. He uh, constantly was uh, debating with people. He was controversial in many ways. He uh, challenged, he, he didn't suffer fools gladly. He was the sort of person who uh, you wouldn't want to have as an enemy, that's for sure. But as we'll see from this letter, he could also be the most loving, tender uh, friend ally, pastor. And that's the kind of relationship he had with the church at Philippi. So that's uh, Paul. What about Philippi, the place to which the letter was being sent? Well, some of you have been there over the years. A good many of you have been with us on trips in the steps of St. Paul in Greece, and you will know. Um, Paul had set out on his second missionary journey and uh, the fact that he had become a loving pastor is shown by the fact that he, the purpose of that second missionary journey was to go and revisit the churches that he'd founded on his first journey and see how they were getting on, encourage them. And he did get to the churches and en route when he stopped at Lystra, uh, this was Paul and Silas traveling together, en route he picked up Timothy at Lystra, uh, who was a Christian with a Christian Jewish background as well and so Timothy joined the team so there were now three of them Paul and Silas and Timothy and from then on it's as if they couldn't do what they wanted to do if you read the story in Acts it's a fantastic tale it really is um, Paul was intent on going to various areas of Asia Minor modern Turkey in order to focus on ministry there he tried to go on a bit from Galatia. He wanted to get into Ephesus. Uh, we read something like the spirit of Jesus would not allow them. Don't know exactly how that worked, but they couldn't get where they wanted to go. So they decided to go north instead towards the Black Sea, uh, Bithynia. And uh, it says then the spirit prevented them. Again, we don't know how. But wherever they wanted to go, they, they couldn't go. The best laid plans and all that. And we all know what that's like when things don't go quite according to plan. And eventually, he traveled all the way through Asia Minor 
until he got to the far west coast to a place called Troas. And there in Troas, he had a dream. Um, A dream you remember was of a man from Macedonia begging them to come over and help us. Macedonia was, of course, in what is now modern Greece um, and Europe, of course, too. Um, So Paul and Silas and Timothy, if you read the story in Acts, and I mean, it is a fantastic story. I I commend it to you. Um, You know, gives us all sorts of lessons on how guidance works for a start, you know, when you can't go where you want to go and all the rest of it. Um, But when when they got to Troas, we're told that Paul, well, there's this very small but significant change in the way the story is told. It's in the Acts of the Apostles, which is written by Luke, and Luke is saying they did this, they did that, they did the other. In Acts 16, at Troas, he said, we decided that it was time to respond to what um, God was saying to us in the vision. So we left Troas and went on to, um, as it happens, a place called Neapolis, which is the modern Kavala. So he changed from they to we, so there's the hint that Luke has now joined them. There are four on the team. There's Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. And uh, interesting how dreams work, isn't it? And how guidance works. It's often through some sort of prompting. We don't know quite what it is. And maybe a dream, maybe some other kind of prompting. But they all sat and discussed and concluded. So it was a, a joint decision. There was consensus. That's how guidance usually works. And they were encouraged uh, and determined to go forward. So they set off from Troas by boat. We set off, Luke writes. Um, distance of 150 kilometers by sea. Uh, took them two days to get from there to Neapolis. And uh, if you look further on in Acts, uh, it took them five days on the way back. So they must have had a, you know, a, a wind behind them, that's for sure, en route. Um, they stopped at a place called Samothrace on the way and arrived at this Neapolis and just 15 kilometers inland from Neapolis was a town which was the chief city of that part of Macedonia uh, and a Roman colony and was called Philippi. Those of you who've been there will remember it. Paul would always go first of all to the Jewish synagogue before he went to the Gentiles and when he got to Philippi, there was no synagogue. Um, A Jewish synagogue required a quorum of 10 men. And there weren't that number, obviously, in Philippi. So he went to what instead was called a prostuke, which was a place of prayer, which happened to be down by a river. Many Many of us have sat in what is the credible place where this place of prayer was and celebrated communion together. Very, very special time indeed. And there he met a few people, a small group, there weren't 10 men, mostly they were women. The leading person was a lady called Lydia. And I have at home a most wonderful 
icon of Lydia, quite a large one, which um, a lady who was one of our guides, who's a very devout uh, member of the Orthodox Church, lovely committed Christian, who's an archeologist, a theologian, she's an artist, she's an iconographer, and, and she's incredibly gifted. And I asked her if she would make me, because you don't paint them, if she would make me an icon of Lydia. And some of you have seen it in our home. It's a magnificent piece of work. And the thing about making an icon, whatever you think of these things, is that they're made with constant prayer. And uh, this one I know is saturated with her prayers for Greece, for us, for our family, for the church here, uh, etc. So we're in Philippi. And uh, Paul has gone to speak to this small group of mainly women, down by the river. And we're told that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. So she responded, and her whole household, we're told, was then immediately baptized. Paul and his companions stayed in Philippi for a while. As they went around preaching, they were followed by a slave girl, and this slave girl kept shouting out and saying, these are people who are serving God. And that was fine because they were. But she was creating a commotion and a disturbance. And the people who were her minders, I suppose, and who profited from her ability to tell fortunes, um, saw that you know, things were going down the drain a little. Um, and so they ensured that um, Paul and Silas, the two of them were together at the time, were thrown into prison and uh, they spent the night there singing hymns. And in the middle of the night, there was an earthquake and the doors all flew open, which is where we meet the second person who was a member of the church at Philippi, who was the Philippian jailer. And he was about to kill himself. The doors were all open, there'd been this earthquake, he was convinced the prisoners had escaped and, and Paul shouted out, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And that's the point at which he fell down at their feet and he said, famous phrase, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, you could uh, ask what he actually meant by that, but uh, probably not with all the theological nuances that we would attach to it. Uh, he wanted to be rescued. But anyway, so Philippian Jailer became a believer. And then, so, you, so you've got Lydia and you've got the slave girl, and you've got the Philippian jailer. Do you know, uh, the head of a Jewish household in those days would pray a prayer every morning, thanking God that he hadn't been made a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And the interesting thing is that those very three people were the founder members of the church in Philippi. A Gentile, a slave, and a woman. And they're the people, that's the place to whom the letter was sent. And they're the people. And Paul then writes to them in these most affectionate, wonderful terms. And he, it's an incredible prayer, isn't it? And in this prayer, there are just, I want to close with this, just three things that he highlights as 
what I would call hallmarks of an, of an effective church today. And the first is the love that flows among and from its members. That, there's a wonderfully deep bond between Christians. I'm sure we all know that. We've experienced it. We've experienced it with people who don't speak our language and we don't speak theirs and we've got nothing in common socially or in other ways, but they know Christ and we know Christ. And it is an immediate bond. I remember a meeting in London, meeting a Chinese person who, and we got an interpreter arranged to come and, uh, and interpret for us and the interpreter didn't turn up. And this uh, Chinese professor, as it was, and his wife, artist, we had a most wonderful half an hour before the uh, interpreter eventually arrived and were able to communicate enormously because we were Christians. There's a love between them. Do you remember how Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Tertullian, who was a, a leader and theologian in the church towards the end of the second century, uh, quoted a saying that was going around among everybody, which was, see how these Christians love one another. And uh, Tertullian sort of quoted that and said, well, it's better than the pagans who hate each other. Oh, we needn't go that far but it's an observation that people outside made of Christians. And wouldn't it be wonderful if that's what was said about everyone who's a Christian at Emmanuel? Do you know there's a love that emanates from that group of people and from the individuals within it that you don't actually find anywhere else? Paul says here as he tries to put into words what is beyond words, verse three, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. So whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's amazing from this man who was so forceful in argument, isn't it? What a tenderness and love and warmth about him. And he said, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. And the way we deepen our love for each other is through this partnership in the gospel. And Paul stresses that again at the end of the chapter. He says, whether well, I come uh, to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I want to know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man or side by side for the faith of the gospel. So through prayer and working alongside each other in spreading the message of Christ, we deepen our love. It's always in activity together that people find a bond, isn't it? Whether it's a playing of sport or whether it's engaging in some particular project, it's that that's how team spirit is built, and it's how love is built up too as we work together for Christ. He longs that our way of life then should commend the gospel. So if, if love is one thing, the love that he prays will abound more and more, an overflow, that you'll feel this deep affection for one another, and it will just overflow. And as Jesus said, uh, it, not, not just to 
fellow people in the church, fellow Christians, but to our neighbor, even to our enemy. And the second thing that is clear from the prayer is that the identi- an identifying mark of a church is the life that is lived by those who belong. Paul prays that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he wants our way of life to commend the gospel, to support the love that we have. And you remember how Paul writes in Galatians 5 that if we're really filled with the Spirit, we will overflow with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. And it's how we live um, as adorning the message we preach and endeavoring to bring glory to God that uh, people will want to find out more. It's Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And it's as we live out the life of Christ, and it is Christ living through us, as Paul makes clear in Philippians, that people will see the difference that he makes And the last thing I want to mention, just in a couple of sentences, really, that emerges from this prayer is the confidence that uh, Paul had and he was sharing with these people and he wanted them to have, too. He says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So... Christians ought to be really confident people. Now, I don't mean by that everyone's going to stand up front and be able to do public things. I don't mean we're all going to be full of self-confidence or even confidence in our ability. Our confidence is in God, being confident of this very thing, that God who is at work in you will carry on what he's begun until it is completed. And we as a church can look to God. Do you know there's a lot of, um, there's a lack of confidence everywhere now. It's true in the world around. We don't know what the future holds because of coronavirus and what's going to happen. It's it's true in the church. Even the Archbishop of York has been saying the church is declining. We don't know what the future is. And everybody's downbeat and a little bit depressed, if I'm honest, in sort of leading church circles. Really? Really? Where is our confidence? Our confidence is not in us. It's not in our structures. It's not in our programs. It is in the God who once he begins a work, always finishes it. He'll do it within each one of us and he'll do it here at Emmanuel. Isn't it wonderful to belong to the church of Jesus Christ, whether it's in Philippi or it's in Stoughton? A church that should be overflowing with love, that should demonstrate the the change, the difference that Christ makes in our lives, and people who are full of a quiet, confident strength, knowing that God is at work. God is with us. Emmanuel. That's what Paul stresses 
here to the church in Philippi. And it's by loving and living in this sort of way that we prompt the kind of questions that people will ask and will enable us to uh, speak to them, share with them, and bring glory to God. I don't know if you heard the um, message that the Queen um, gave to the recently appointed new General Synod a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Prince Edward read it because she was advised by her doctors not to go. But she said this, after she talked a bit about the new Synod, she said, of all the tasks that lie ahead of this Synod, the supreme task that you must give yourself to is to bring the people of this country to the knowledge and love of God. That is our task. And we're not alone. God is with us. Our confidence is in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you're the one who is at work in us frail, ordinary Christian people. You're the one at work in the church, which many people think is dying on its feet. And you have promised that what you have begun, you will finish. Thank you that we can go out this morning with absolute confidence in you. Help us to love and to live in this way, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.